about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bill Horn, and he'll be answering your questions on fishing on the bow. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bill a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of the web pages, and uh, we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You'll also be able to find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. If you have a moment, do it right now and share it with some other folks that might enjoy tonight's show. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Bill Horn about fishing on the bow. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Bill, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Bill's section that says Register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Bill's latest book, On the Bow, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to find out more about what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com and look at all the wonderful books they have on fly fishing. It's quite the library. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question I ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Bill and I talk about during the show. You must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. And that's the same text box that you can ask questions during the show with. Same place. So listen closely. Take some good notes, type fast when I ask the question, and if you're the first one with the correct answer, you'll win Bill Horn's book, On the Bow. Our guest tonight is Bill Horn. Bill started fishing in the Florida Keys in 1958. He took to fly fishing in 1965 primarily for trout. His first bonefish was landed in the Florida Keys in 1974. 
Bill has pursued bonefish, tarpon, and permit on the flats of the Florida Keys, Everglades, the Bahamas, Mexico, and Hawaii. Bill has worked in different capacities over the years for the U.S. Department of Interior for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, the U.S.-Canada Great Lakes Fish Commission, National Wildlife Refuge, Centennial Commission, and the National Academy of Sciences. He presently works as a natural resources law attorney and has served the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, U.S. Sportsman's Alliance, Trout Unlimited, Ruffed Grouse Society, the Conservation Fund, and fishing guides and lodges throughout western U.S. and Alaska. Bill is currently serving on the board of directors for Bone, Fish, and Tarpon Trust, Friends of the Teton River, and Trout Unlimited. His articles have appeared in American Angler, Fly Rod and Reel, Florida Sportsman, The Angling Report, Bone, Fish, and Tarpon Trust Journal, Keys Weekly Newspaper, and the Pointing Dog Journal. He has written two books, Seasons on the Flat, An Angler's Year in the Florida Keys, and On the Bow, Love, Fear, and Fascination in Pursuit of Bonefish, Tarpon, and Permit. He's also co-authored an Appalachian Grouse Dog and contributed to a passion for grouse. Bill, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thank you, Roger. Glad to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Always fun to talk about the salt and... Boy, you've been fishing it a lot, from what I can tell. <laughs> you, in, you went all in, didn't my, you? Oh, you got into my veins when I was about seven or eight years old and has never left. Yeah, yeah. But the most recent years have all been down in the Keys primarily and, and little jaunts from there, right? Yes. And, yeah, we, as I said, all those years of working, it was a dream to say, I need to live someplace where I can go fishing out my back door and, be in a good spot in five or ten minutes and so when I mostly retired from practicing law I was had to quickly move to the Florida Keys and bought a house on a canal and a flats boat in the backyard and I'm able to jump in the boat and I think my closest tarpon spot is six minutes away which is pretty damn good so uh, um, and the Keys is a wonderful wonderful place yeah yeah wow and where are you at what key are you Uh, on we're in Marathon, which is right in the middle. For Marathon. those not familiar, yeah, for those not familiar with the islands, it's it's 108 miles from when you come onto Key Largo off the mainland to the end of US One down in uh, Key West, and of course there's about 47 bridges along the, the 108 miles, and Marathon's dead in the middle. Everything's done by mile marker based on the old railroad that was built there. It opened in 1912 by Henry Flagler, and in the Keys, you talk to people, and half the time it's, well, what mile marker do you live at? And we live near mile marker 52, which is almost dead smack in the middle between Key Largo and Key West. So you can go north, or well, let's see, it's it's like east or west down there at that point, isn't it? <laughs> kind yeah, of like northeast be, and west. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, when you come out of the mainland, it's kind of, you know, northeast, southwest, and then once you get to the Middle Keys, people don't appreciate it. The the Keys do run almost east-west yeah. from uh, Marathon yeah. down to Key West. Right, a big arc going down there. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on your latest book, On the Bow. Lots of great stories and your commentary on fishing from the bow for tarpon, permit, and bonefish. And, yeah, and you incorporate some interviews with, some people, guides, and so forth in the book as well. So I'd like to stem off that for tonight's questioning. And most of your fishing for the flats has been primarily in the Keys, the Bahamas, and Mexico. Is that correct? 
done a couple of trips to Mexico, but probably in one to Hawaii, but you know, 98% of it's been in the Keys and the adjacent Everglades and then the short pop across the Gulf Stream to the Bahamas, especially Andros Island, yeah. which is a wonderful, wonderful place. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that as well tonight. In the book, you broke your book into three main sections, the fish, the people, and the locations or places. So I'm going to kind of follow that lead and have you share with us your experiences down there because you've done a lot of fishing and there's nothing that you can, you know, read in a book that you do on the water itself. I mean, you learn so much there by doing and you sharing that in your book is great. So let's talk about the fish. Let's start out with bonefish. That's a popular fish for people that have not fished the salt to start out with. It kind of gets harder from there to tarpon and permit. But tell us about your view of bonefish, you know, how you view it as a game fish. Tell us a little bit about its habits in the Keys, because I think it may differ in other parts of the world as well and how that fishery is, the health is going, and how it's changed over the years. Kind of give us your take on bonefish and the geese. Great. You know, first of all, I guess I love bonefish. I always think of bonefish as the gateway drug to flats fishing because it is an accessible fish. It's got all the attributes that make the big three just great game fish. You know, it's a highly visible enterprise, and, of course, you know, when you hook one, do you ever wonder why you buy expensive fly reels with good drags and put a lot of backing on them? You know, the first time you hook a pretty damn good bonefish, you'll discover why in a heartbeat. And there's just nothing quite like the opening run of a bonefish to get the adrenaline pumping. And in that sense, they're a great fish. But as I said, they're very accessible fish. I think bonefishing, you know, you can make it really tough. You go after some fish in certain locations, very shallow tailing fish, big fish, you know, the 8, 9, 10-pounders, they can be very, very tough. But, you know, your average bonefish, whether it's in the Keys or in the Bahamas, Mexico and Belize, is a pretty accessible fish. They're on the flats to feed, and you learn to be a reasonably competent fly angler. Catching bonefish is not going to be that difficult. And in that sense, you go out without all the anxiety that surrounds tarpon and permit fishing Bone fishing is a far more of an enjoyable pastime. The Keys, obviously, is where bone fishing really got started as a sport going back to the 30s when the, the railroad first opened up and brought people down. And, you know, for years, Florida Keys were really the epicenter of all bone fishing. I mean, the, all the big ones came from there, and that's where you went. Some people went to the Bahamas, and those fisheries developed, uh, again, over the, you know, starting probably back in the 50s and 60s. We suffered a very severe drop in our bonefish population starting about 15 or 20 years ago. And it was one of the things that led to the creation of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, which was to try to figure out exactly what was going wrong. Why were the bonefish disappearing at this really, really rapid rate when the permit weren't disappearing and the tarpon weren't disappearing and the redfish weren't disappearing? Why were the bonefish disappearing? And fortunately, Lots of years of good study have begun to identify a variety of problems, uh, some of which are starting to get corrected. And Mother Nature has turned things around very nicely. Starting about five or six years ago, our bonefish in the Keys began to rebound. And now the numbers are back. Uh, The fish are not as big as they used to be 15, 20 years ago. The average bonefish in the Keys was probably a good solid 
six pounder. The average bonefish in the Keys today is probably a three to four pounder. And but there are lots of them around. They've made a very wonderful comeback. And interestingly enough, they're more farther, farther down. It used to be you never went to Key West to catch bonefish. The bonefish were all up in Key Largo and Isla Mirada, some around Marathon. Now there's lots and lots of bonefish in the lower keys where interestingly enough, twenty years ago they really weren't found. So it's been a real nice comeback for our bonefish. But which is fun because did, they're a great fish. Yeah, Bill, did, did they figure out what the problem was of why what the setback was? Cause we think it's a combination of factors. One was, you know, the water quality problems that have afflicted Florida Bay, which are a result of all of the water mismanagement historically in the Everglades. And of course, that's slowly but surely getting corrected with the multi-billion dollar Everglades restoration program that's now 20-some years old. So we think that we had severe water quality problems, which are, again, we're on the cusp of getting those changed. The other aspect, we discovered that the bonefish larvae, when they spawn, and I added a lot of science stuff in this new book because I think people find it fascinating because mm -hmm. nobody knew any of this stuff 20 years ago. The fish spawn in deeper water. They leave the flats and go out. They spawn in these big mass aggregations, and then the adults run back into the shallow flats. The eggs hatch pretty quickly into this little, like, one-inch-long eel-like looking thing called a leptocephalus. That's the snap quiz for tomorrow's science class. And these <laughs> things kind of float around in the current for approximately 50 to 55 days. And what, of course, we all finally discovered was that the currents that come from Belize and Mexico and the west end of Cuba all come together to create the Florida current and ultimately the Gulf Stream. And it's now pretty apparent that bonefish larvae will ride that current and come up to the Keys, and we know that there was some severe overfishing in the western parts of Cuba. There were big, giant fish meal plants that the Russians helped the Cuban government build, and they were everything that moved. And interestingly enough, the, the big demise occurred coincidental with the opening up of some of those big fish meal plants and all this inshore netting. And after it shut down and there were some constraints put in on the illegal commercial netting down in Mexico and Belize. Voila, a few years later, we started to get these small two, three-pound bonefish back. So we think that we share those bonefish with these our upstream neighbors, and it's going to take regional conservation, continued regional conservation, for both Cuba, Belize, and Mexico to hold on to their fish, and of course they're going to continue to feed young fish up to us. So it's a good lesson yeah. in science and probably the need for regional conservation. Now, I think in your book, if I remember reading it correctly, you're saying some of these larvae end up being mixed, like it's big soup down there in, in the Gulf of Mexico, so to speak, and you'll find those moving between Belize, Cuba, and the Keys uh, all through there. So is the species then transferring from one country and coast to the other? Is that what's going well, on? Yeah, what it really is is we really we don't think the adults migrate between, right. let's say, you know, Cuba and Florida or, let's say, Mexico and Florida. But the currents do, in fact, transport these larval forms. And we know that there's interchange of bonefish between the northern shores, the northeastern side of Cuba, and the southern Bahamas have interchange. 
And we know that there's interchange between Mexico and Belize. We obviously have some of those fish coming up. We've got comparable stuff goes on with our tarpon as well. The bottom line is these species are regional populations. It's not just a discrete population in Florida and a separate population in Mexico. They all share each other genetically. There's interchange between, again, because of the larval transport. So it demonstrates the need for mm -hmm. uh, pretty good cooperation around across the board. And I know that we have really good relationships with the Bahamas government and on conservation measures there. And, you know, of course, we're working to improve that stuff with Cuba and same thing with Mexico and Belize. So right. it's a regional population. Albula volpes is a regional population. There's just no two doubts about it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. There was a question from Richard Elkin in New Jersey. He says, why do you think the bonefish in Belize and Mexico seem to be smaller and more plentiful? Are they a different subspecies? Well, we just talked about that. But why is, isn't it isn't out on Andros and so forth? Aren't there some huge bonefish out there? Yes, there are. Yeah. And I think most of the scientists will tell you it's mostly a function of habitat. One reason that the Keys traditionally grew such big bonefish is that most of the flats in the Keys that you find the bonefish on were either turtle grass flats, thick, dark turtle grass, and or these mixed flats involving some kind of corals and sponges and stuff. The Keys does not have much of the sand flats that you love to fish because they're really easy to see the bonefish on, whereas those turtle grass flats produce an enormous amount of forage for these fish, whereas some of these other marl flats, mud flats, sand flats, they don't seem to produce as much in the way of food. So the fish don't grow as fast. They grow faster at Andros and the Keys than they grow in most other locations. And which enables them to get big. But people shouldn't ever forget that a 10-pound uh, bonefish is probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. So if you wonder why they're hard to catch, they've seen it wow. all by the time you throw them a fly. But it's mostly a habitat yeah. deal. And the, the better... That's just food, yeah. yeah. Just food, just food, you know. Yeah. No different from us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't have problems growing big, do we? <laughs> <laughs> More food than we know. Burger and fries will do it, you know? Yeah. You got it. Um, yeah, I really like the picture, page 176 you've got in there. Looks like it was taken by Robbie Romer. Yes. And it looks like a bait ball of bonefish. That's an incredible. <laughs> you don't think of bonefish in that view, you know? You think of them skittering across the flats and so forth, but that is an incredible view that most of us will never see. Right. Folks, it just looks like a big bait ball of bonefish in the deep water in their pre-spawn aggregation. So really cool, Kosha. I just had to comment on that. Yeah. When you fish for bonefish in the Keys, are you primarily fishing from the boat? Are you waiting? What's the approach down there? I would say in the Keys, it's probably about 95% from the boat because our flats tend to be a little bit deeper and particularly if you fish on the north side of the gulf side of the keys the flats there have a tendency to be a little bit softer and so the combination of softer flats and deeper water make them far more amenable to uh, fishing off the boat plus because we have so much of the dark grass bottoms it's harder to see them on your on foot uh, and so it's mostly, it's dominantly a boat fishery, although there are any number of places that you can go to 
there used to be a few right along the highway, and there's a few of them coming back where, you know, you kind of park your car and walk off onto the flat right next to the road, and the bonefish are starting to come back on some of them as well. So wading is an option there, but it's mostly boat fishing. One of the things that's interesting about the fish coming back, and we don't know this is a function of behavior or too many people on the water or jet skis or something, but the bonefish, we tend to find them in a little bit deeper water than we used to. Richard Black, who's mm. one of a super, super young guide up in Isla Morada, who's just an incredibly fishy guy. Richard, as he says in the interview in there, he probably finds himself fishing mostly in water that's like three feet deep. Mm. And, of course, that's boat fishing. That's right. It's a little different than some of the other venues that you go to around the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we talked about earlier today, I told you my first experience down there in the Keys of a do-it-yourself without knowing at all what you're doing. And <laughs> I experienced one of those soft-bottom flats. <laughs> I think I was up almost mid-calf out there and kind of muck. So I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Not as easy as some of the sand flats in Belize. or Andros, uh, much easier to wade, right? Yeah, Andros, same kind of – it's interesting – Different parts of Andros, the Andros is called one island. It's really just a big archipelago with hundreds of islands. But there's a North Andros, Mangrove Key, and South Andros. And the middle is bisected by three waterways that cut across the island. They're 25 miles long. The bites, the North Bite, Middle Bite, and the South Bite. When you get back into the bites and on the west side, that's mostly soft bottoms. But when you get over on the east side of the island that fronts their barrier reef and what's called the tongue of the ocean, which is over a mile deep. There's pretty hard coral bottoms. And interestingly enough, down in South Andros, the inland waters, you go up places called Little Creek and Deep Creek and Grassy Creek, the substrate there's different and it's harder bottom. It's coral and sand. And so South Andros and the eastern part of the Bights are really great, great wading locations, whereas if you go back in the Bights and you go over to Andros's justly famous west side where some monster bonefish live, that's mostly soft bottom, and so you're spending your time in boats. So that's a great location to go to if you like to do both and you don't want to just wade and you don't want to just do a boat. Andros is a wonderful place for that. Yeah, yeah, uh, lots of variety. So what are some of the things that, you know, what are your approaches to bone fishing? What have you learned over the years that have become part of your approach and your arsenal and the way it flies yeah. and so forth and your presentation? What have you learned and what can you share with us? Well, one of the first things is, you know, really work on learning to see them. And it's tricky in the beginning. You kind of get out there and the guide's calling out. And I remember the first time I did it in 1974 and he's, they're right there, and I'm looking at them, and I'm looking in the water, and I'm not seeing anything, and I was like, holy smokes. And then after a while, you begin to pick up the shadows and the subtle movements, and you kind of stop looking for a fish. You look for movement, and you look for you know a little bit of off color, and you look for that shadow. And over time, you learn to see it, and when you see the fish, you can be a so much more rapid and accurate with your casts than if you're relying on your guide to talk you into the fish. And so, you know, just that ability to see is really worth its weight in gold. And then the second part is to learn to basically deliver quick and accurate casts. 
you hear a lot about salt water and, oh, God, you know, the guy making the 80-foot cast. Well, there's a time and place for that stuff. But I can guarantee you that probably 98% of the bonefish in this world are caught with casts less than 50 feet. And if you can make a good, crisp, accurate 40, 45-foot cast, you're going to catch plenty of bonefish, whether it's the Keys, Belize, or the Bahamas. No two doubts about it. But one of the critical elements there is that is not only the accuracy, but the quickness. So many guys come from fresh water, and they're used to trout fishing, and they're used to false casts. And I've had guides. <laughs> one of my guide buddies one day was complaining about he had a guy in the boat, and he'd call out a fish, and it had to be five or six false casts before the fly got there. And, you know, the bottom line is the boat's moving, the fish is moving, everything's moving. And when the guide set him up, that fish was in a perfect spot for maybe a quick, crisp 45-foot cast. Well, five, six false casts later, that fish is running into the boat and spooking, <laughs> and it's all over with. So if you're going to go to the salt, one of the number one things to learn to do is to be quick with your cast and get rid of all those extra false casts that you really don't need when you got a good casting stroke. That, that'll do so much for your bone fishing. And if there's one thing you absolutely have to learn to do to be quasi-successful in the permit world, it's that quick cast. That's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, um, that... You know, I mentioned, um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned flies. uh we can have great long conversations and all of us fill our fly boxes and I think all of us will discover that most of us end up with one or two patterns that we probably use 90% of the time. And, and in my case, for either Andros or the, or the Keys, we, the guys at a place called the Mangrove Key Club came up with a variation about 10 or 15 years ago on the famous gotcha fly and instead of the pink head they used red and instead of a pearl tail they used gold and it became the red-headed gotcha and I mean if you told me I only had one bonefish fly to fish with that's it right there and you and I were talking earlier about that permit picture that you used that right. big permit is a red-headed gotcha bonefish fly you know <laughs> so it's a great fly but you know if you go down there you'll find out that every guide has got his own favorite fly and if you hire a guide you know, defer to the guide. You're paying for all that good professional expertise, and don't argue with them about the fly unless this fly doesn't work, then you can change. But I find a well-presented red-headed gotcha works all over the place, and then, yeah. then when you get the yeah. special fish, the tailors or something in super deep water, or something, then you can start changing things up. But find presentation is far more important than fly pattern for bonefish. Yeah, yeah. Quick comment on that. When I was... The time before last when I was in Belize, we were out on the flats and had put the poles down and we were just turning over rocks, these coral flats, pancake yeah. flats, and looking at the crabs underneath there. And I swear there were no two crabs that looked alike. Ones are light <laughs> tan, there's a green one, there's kind of a bluish one. They're all different colors, all different colors, you know. And we see these, well, it's got to be a green one. Well, Guess what? <laughs> There's other colors out there, too. And I was amazed at the variety of crabs. And this was all within 100 yards. It wasn't like we were in different parts of Belize or something. But, yeah, and the other thing that you mentioned is 
accuracy of casting and with the breeze, right? With a breeze, always with a breeze, right? Yes, I mean, you don't want to be in the tropics. I've had guys come down and and it's like, oh, I really want a calm day. And I go, you do not want a calm day. First of all, (laughs) you go out on a flat on a calm day, you just kind of have to decide, do you want to be well done or medium rare? I mean, you're going to boil. It gets hot. And secondly, when it gets calm, the fish... That's you're in this beautiful gin clear water, and trust me, when you can see them, they can see you. And when it gets so flat like that, they see the fly lines, they feel the boat, they hear you waiting. When it gets dead calm, you better be able to throw 80 plus feet sometimes because that's as close as those fish will let you get to them. Conversely, it's blowing 15, you can get the fish and catch them 25 feet from the boat because they lose their wariness in that wind. So a lot of the guys will tell you. Guys show up and it's blowing and they start griping and groaning and uh, and the guides tell them the wind is your friend and it's a little trite but it is absolutely true is you just learn to throw a good crisp tight loop and you can deal with damn near any wind that that you know is worth fishing in. Yeah, yeah. Well, we need to take a quick break here. We'll come right back and chat more about fishing from the bow. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charliesleflyfishing.com. Again, that's charliesleflyfishing.com. Or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bill Horn about on the bow and tarpon, permit, and bonefish. So if you'd like to ask Bill a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. Okay. One of the, let's see, one of the questions that came in, Ed Gabriel, I think Bill kind of addressed your question on water quality and so forth and that there is work being done, but if, if you'd like to write in again and ask Something more specific, let me know. Okay, this one just came on the Internet. It says, I'm the principal author of Appalachian Grouse Dog. Uh, (laughs) Something to smile about. He's talking to you from Tetonia, and I'm almost to my month-long perch on the Madison. Uh, Someone you know? (laughs) Oh, sounds like my pal Dennis. (laughs) Yep, yeah, yeah. Well, he's listening. He's listening. Oh, great. uh, Yeah, so a little piece of humor there. And then another one came in. Oh, Dennis, yeah. (laughs) Now now I get the connection. He wrote in one early. It says, how do you get to go tarpon fishing with Bill? I guess, you know, be his friend, which Dennis already is. He's probably been fishing with him, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. Enough of that. Yeah, let's talk about permit now. A bit more difficult to catch, right? (laughs) We talked about this before the show, too. And, 
you know, there's always the guy that goes down there and the first morning he's out catches one, right? That's Absolutely. never been me. <laughs> it's never been me. Oh. I don't care what oh. it is, you know. I've always had to work for mine. So how about you? <laughs> oh, gee, I mean, look, you know, it took me, oh, I don't know, three or four years of trying to get my first one. Then I had a little period where I thought I was doing okay, and then I made the mistake of thinking I was doing okay. And the fish guide <laughs> said, we're going to cure this right now. And then I got hammered. I don't think I could buy one for five years. And then, no, I mean, they are the most exasperating damn thing on the flats. I mean, they're gorgeous. They fight hard. They're just such cool fish. But they can absolutely drive you out of your skull. And if you're going to take up permit fishing and it's a worthy venture, you just have to be prepared for the you have to be partially psychotic in the because the fish are partially psychotic. <laughs> There's just yeah, no two ways around. It. They're very tough. <laughs> oh, I, one of the we were talking before, and, and one of the issues that it's hard enough to get to bite. They're so spooky, and then of course they'll turn around and eat a fly like they haven't been fed in a year. But even on the feeding side, they're just exasperating fish. If you watch bonefish. You can almost always tell when a bonefish eats a fly. He, he'll come behind it. He'll stop. You'll see him tip down. They do a little scrunchy thing. They, they're if it's shallow, you'll see the dorsal fin flare. But normally they kind of they scrunch their back up. It has something to do with the way they punch things into the bottom. Of course, when a tarpon eats, gee, you watch the trap door open and it's like a flushing toilet, and a fly goes in. There's hardly missing that permit you never know i've had permits go down on flies quiver look like they've eaten it you strip there's nothing there and then other times you throw and you don't think you're anywhere near it and all of a sudden the line twitches you twitch back and you're hooked up they are they're just exasperating bizarro fish and you just have to accept that if you're going to chase them yeah and now in the keys you're primarily fishing for permits from a boat as well i take it because of the same issues with the flats fishing with bonefish right yeah however i can tell you in the last four or five years there's a couple of fellows down in key west uh, nathaniel linville who runs the angling company fly store down there he's a real permit guru those guys started jumping out of the boats and wading after them and and they've got some spots where you got hard bottom flats and they've done quite well and it's the same thing that i can remember going to ascension bay and talking to the guy who was running the place we stayed there and that was their standard when they'd go along in the panga and they'd see permit they never liked to fish for the permit out of the boat they wanted to hop you over the side and they concluded that you could get so much closer that the permit just feel the pressure of the boat in a big lateral line, and they're just so much more approachable if you're waiting quietly. And so in the Keys, they've now picked the page up from the Ascension Bay guys, and some of the lower Keys guys are doing a lot more waiting for permit, particularly in the summer and fall months, than was ever historically true in the Keys. So interesting, interesting yeah. bit of cross-pollinization in terms of the fishing. That's interesting because... Down in Belize, they do both, but a lot of it is on these pancake flats where you're out over blue water and all of a sudden this flat pops up, coral right. head flat, and you wait and you see them out there across the flat. Same thing, you, like you said, you jump out of the boat and then you start slowly moving your way in towards them. So it sounds like you have the same kind of technique when in water that's knee deep or less in many cases. Yeah. 
So hard to get the boat up on those flats sometimes when they're moving up on there. Which brings up, that we talked about earlier too, about tides. So permit, like bonefish, are tuned into feeding on the tides, right? So Absolutely. what do you need to know about the tides for permit down there to be successful? You can't just go out on a flat any time and hope to find permit, right? What do you need to do? Well, in the Keys, I think the tides, by shifting that water around, and the Keys are full of banks and bridges and islands, so you get all these constrictions, it's current. And I think just as important as the stage of the tide, probably more important is the water movement. Permit love hard-flowing water over the edges of banks, over strip banks, or up on certain channel edges. And a lot of the guys have a real propensity to want to fish during the new moon and full moon tides so that you get a lot of current. So you're working the moving water on the edges of banks and, and channels and stuff. And that because the permit are fundamentally a deep water fish that come up on the flats, where the bonefish is a flats fish. The permit's a right. deep water fish that sort of shows up on the flats sometimes. And they really like when they can get on those edges with current because it brings them food. They can run off and hide in the deeper stuff. So current and moving water is probably as important, if not more important, than the actual stage of the tide itself. And you get bigger currents and more movement with the spring tides on the new and the full moons. Yeah, now, because yeah, the permit will hold down in that deeper water, right? And then just move up onto that flat or yep. shallow area, feed, and then they'll just as quickly be off that flat, lickety split, right? So it's the oh, absolutely. timing of absolutely. that current and yeah, yeah, that's what I've noticed, and it's it's a real timing thing. Like Oh, and to make things even more complicated, you go to the Keys and you start poking around on your own, and suddenly you appreciate there's a difference between the current and the tide. I can think of any number of places where the, the actual current lags the tide by like three hours. In other words, the tide starts falling, but the current is kind of still, quote, running in but the water level was actually falling, and then it kind of catches up with itself. And so you have a tricky time correlating current and tide. It's one of the reasons that good guides are worth their weight in gold in a place like this. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> because you just show up, and you've got to start thinking about the tide's different at all these different spots because it flows along the islands, and it's higher down here sooner than it's higher up here. You have this disconnect between the current flow and the actual stage of the tide. And I can think, and this is true in Tarpon too, I can think of banks where I want the current to be flowing like north. And then I'm going to find the tarpon on the downstream side of the strip bank laying there. But if I show up there, they don't like it when the current goes the other direction for some reason, and they won't be there. And so you have to understand, okay, I'm going to go fish this spot. I need to be there with the current running in. Then you got to calculate when the hell is the current going to be running in because I can't just look at the tide chart. I have to extrapolate from the tide chart to figure out the currents. So it can be pretty tricky stuff. And, of course, the good guides, they know this stuff so cold. And it's yeah. I've been fishing with these guys for 30 years, and it just blows me away that they'll, they'll sit there and go, okay, we're going to go over here because I think the, tides of, the current's about to switch. 
And we're going to find those permit up on this little scalloped edge, and you run over there, and you pull along, and by God, there they are. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the predictive powers are pretty impressive. Yeah, and the only way they get all that knowledge is by being on the water every day and looking and, and, yeah, making mental notes and been there before, done this. Yeah, I, you would have to spend a ton of time on your own down there, I would think, to even come close to having a decent day, you know, with one of these guides. Yeah, they're worth every penny and more probably than what we pay them. But, yeah, well, I agree. They, they... Go ahead. Yeah, it's as it just takes an enormous amount of time. I guess the fact that I live down there now and, and get to spend sometimes seven days a week on the water, you begin to just appreciate the knowledge base the really good veteran guys possess, and it's just very, yeah. very impressive. And it pays off in terms of their ability to put together a plan on day. They'll look at the tides and go, okay, we're going to go to X and then Y and then Z, and then when the thing switches around, we're going to go to A and B and C. Those guys will put mm-hmm. a plan together when they go out in the morning based on wind direction and the tides. And it's obviously you strike out a lot because fish are fish. It's a big ocean. But a lot of times their predictive capabilities are just very, very impressive. And it makes, talk about this in the book, it's, just, it's part of what makes the flats fishing such a fascinating thing. This is an incredibly dynamic environment that you're part of. And you, to be successful, have got to really become part of that environment. You've got to be a predator and insinuate yourself into all that's going on out there in order to predict where these fish are going to be so you can catch them. And that adds a dimension to flats fishing that I think is really unappreciated by a lot of people. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head there. And so when you are successful, you should really take a moment for yourself and congratulate yourself on a job well done because uh, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We got a question from Terry Horn in Alabama. I don't know if he's relation or not. I don't think so, but since I had my first first permit fishing experience during a fly fishing trip to Ascension Bay in April, I had very good shots at a school of tailing fish while wading into a cruising pair of huge fish from the bow of a panga. In both cases, nerves got the best of me. I couldn't make a decent cast, so was 0 for 2. Hopefully, I'll do better next time. My question is, where permit are concerned, do you have a higher success rate on cruisers versus tailing fish? Well, I would say I think you probably do slightly better on tailing fish because tailing fish are definitely eating. They're digging in the bottom. They're punching some poor crab into oblivion to eat it and they're obviously feeding, and they're looking for food, and they've got their eyes down on the bottom, and you get a fly down there. They're not up high in the water column looking at you, looking at them. <laughs> and so cruisers who are just sort of passing by can be tougher in hell to feed, but feeding fish, whether they're tailing or just simply digging in the bottom and mudding, in my experience, they're much, on the permit scale, relatively easier to feed than the cruisers. Yeah, Steve Bourne, Madison, Wisconsin. Steve has actually been a guest on my show. He's up there in the Driftless area. Ah. He wrote in and says, that moment when your targeted fish eats is magic. Techniques for setting the hook on bonefish and even tarpon can be pretty straightforward. But knowing when a permit has eaten your fly and how and when to set the hook is far more mysterious. There seem to be multiple ideas on how to successfully hook up a permit. What's your approach? Well, we talked about this earlier, that they can exasperate mm-hmm. you because you know when a bonefish eats your fly most of the time. You know when a tarpon eats your fly. Permit look like they're eating your fly, and they don't. 
and other times they don't look like they're paying any attention and they've eaten it. The only thing I've ever found and the guys I fish with find successful is watch like a hawk when it looks like they've gone down on the fly, they've quivered on it, they've tailed on it, they've done something out of the ordinary strip set. And if he's not there, well, you've just moved your fly a couple feet, he may come back and eat it again anyway. Yeah. But just be prepared for exasperation because it's the nature of the beast. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk more maybe about permit and then some tarpon. So hang tight, everybody. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying materials. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their entire online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bill Horn about On the Bow, fishing for bonefish, tarpon, and permit. If you'd like to ask Bill a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that text box to send in your question, and we'll try to get it answered here tonight. Okay, so we just talked about hooks. At any presentation techniques, and also throw in a few of those successful flies that you've used in the past for permit. Yeah. Well, the permit thing has kind of been going through, it goes through these sort of periodic revolutions. It was when Steve Huff, Captain Steve Huff and Del Brown kind of cooked up the infamous or famous Merkin crab fly and kind of came up with this idea of dropping it sort of on their head, right in front of them with the heavy eyes. And as the fly dived for the bottom, it apparently looked to the permit like a fleeing crab and they just sort of grab it without looking at it too hard. And, of course, Dell and Dell used that to catch over 500 permit. He's still the grand master of permit fishing, given all that. And for so a long time, we were all working on crab flies, and then they got to be very realistic crab flies. Some of them, you'd open the box, and they'd look like they'd crawl out. But in the last few years, the guys down in Ascension Bay were starting to fish more like spawning shrimp flies, and stripping the flies and starting to catch permit. And some of those guys brought that back. And you see more and more guys now in the Keys stripping spawning shrimp patterns on permit and, and using that. And then I mentioned Nathaniel Linville earlier. Nathaniel and a, a very innovative fly tire named Dave Skoke came up with a thing called a strong arm crab, which it's a crab fly with a trailing claw because some of the little blue crabs, when they swim, they trail a claw behind them, and the conclusion was maybe the permit look at that. And they're, these are like a swimming crab pattern, and so they strip them sort of judiciously. So you have the kind of three techniques to drop a heavy crab on their head, the Huff-Brown method, try to throw some kind of a spawning shrimp pattern and strip it one Good fella and down south in Biscayne Bay, Bob Branham always says he likes to do that because he says it brings out the jack in the permit. And then you've got this <laughs> new 
this new development with the swimming crab pattern kind of swum stripped a little bit, I will say I find myself taking my red-headed gotcha bonefish fly, and I caught that big permit I showed you the picture of. I've caught a couple of other permit, and about a year or so ago, I ended up with a double grand slam one day. I caught two permit on the red-headed gotcha because they kept showing up while we were bone fishing. And so, and that was a stripped fly as well. So those are the three techniques that are kind of being used, swimming crab, stripped shrimp, sink crab on their heads. Take your pick depending on your conditions and what you guide like. And they all work some of the time. <laughs> you know, 99% <laughs> of the time they don't. Yeah. That's permit fishing. You know. Yeah. You know, that's funny. I was going to ask you about the strong-arm merkin because down in Belize, that's been a, this year has been hot fly down there. Uh-huh. And part of what I, I did do some reading on that, I haven't fished it yet, but I've got a few that I've got in my hand right now ready to right. go. But what I understood, too, is that trailing uh, claw as, acts like a rudder, so I guess it keeps the fly in the upright position as it goes through the water column and then hits the bottom, whereas a lot of the others, I guess, will flip over or something. So that was another, I guess, unique quality for that fly. I don't know how well yeah, that you're works. Absolutely but... right. Yeah, because, that's, I mean, nothing worse. We used to tie this other crab fly. We used to put them on keel hooks, to uh, jig hooks, to keep them tracking straight because we discovered that if you tried to swim a crab and it started to kick and flutter one side or the other, oh, the permit hated that because the real crabs don't do that. And the guys down there in Key West, they put this strong arm together, and those guys have been super fastidious about its weight and basically stripping it so that it tracks absolutely straight. And that apparently has a very major effect on how well the permit take to it. And those yeah. guys are catching a lot. They're catching a lot by permit standards down there. I can um, assure you, I've got a no. bunch in my box now. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> it's funny, though, you know. I mean, isn't that interesting how just... I mean, how long has the Merkin been around? 30 years oh, or more? Yeah, yeah. And now just a little addition makes it all that much better. It's amazing. how. Yeah. And you know that came from some guide out there that thought one day, hmm, maybe I can make this swim straighter. <laughs> and oh, voila, I, right? Yeah. I can tell you that when we started with a couple of my marathon guys about 20 years ago, we started playing with different types of, swimming crabs and you know none of us came up with anything as good as the strong arm but i can remember i'd go down to the bait store and i'd buy little crabs and i'd sit on my canal and i'd throw the crabs in the water i had them hooked on a really light line just to watch them swim and how they swam and did this and that and then i'd go in and i'd try to we we the guys would come over and crack a couple of beers and we'd sit there and start trying to put together variations on the flies and keeling them or weighting them this way, all to try to get them to swim and look like those crabs that we saw in the canal. Yeah. I mean, it's very obsessive behavior. Our, our wives think we're all crazy, and we probably are. But, hey, it's the, when you're up against a tough fish, you got to get crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you read John Ulrich's book yes. on permits? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So that's when we were... He did. He was making casts of uh, 
you know, the shells of the crab and then right. manufacturing those as it flies. That's why I was looking under the rocks down in Belize and all the crabs because we were capturing <laughs> them and, and putting molds on them. So I took them back to the island, kept them all alive in a bucket, and I was making molds of them. And then uh, we got done with that, and my guide says, well, put them back in the water so they don't die or they don't get wasted. And, of course, they're going to die when you put them back in the water anyway. But I dumped them over the side of the dock, and within about two seconds, all these fish came out from under the dock and ate all those crabs right away. So <laughs> trying to save the crabs did not work very well. But, uh, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but it was funny, yeah, because the guide was like, well, save the crabs, you know. Well, uh, fish ate them anyway, which is putting them to good use. That's you got it. There you for. got it. But, yeah, yeah, no big deal. Well, let's talk about tarpon a bit here. Another. My favorite. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I like permit, but I love tarpon. I just like the way they look. I like the way they act. <laughs> They're just, the minute I saw one, I was hooked. And my first experience with tarpon was down in Key West. And the guy was polling through there, and you'd see these pods, you know, these little schools of five or six coming at you and talking about having a nervous breakdown. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the time that you're going to have one, right? Oh. Uh, that was a different approach that they have down there in the Keys, and I assume in other parts of the Keys, I mean, at Key West and other parts of the Keys, is that searching these deep flats for schooling tarpon, right? Well, we really have two fundamental, well, there's really three fundamental different tarpon fisheries in the Keys. Okay. The first is we've got a great small tarpon, juvenile, juniors, babies, whatever you call them. I don't like to call them babies because some of them weigh 30 pounds. But, and that's dominantly a summer-fall deal, although I think of a place that's five minutes from my house where when we get good weather in January, we can go over and put some 10, 15-pound tarpon in the air and have a blast. So you've got the small tarpon fishery. The big headline is the ocean cruisers that you get on the ocean, the Atlantic side of the Keys, basically from about mid-April to mid-June. And that's when you're staking out and you're waiting for hordes of these fish to swim by you. You can see from the book I've got some pretty cool photographs of these big yeah. schools of fish coming by. And if that doesn't make your knees knock and your palms sweat, go take up something. Yeah. Go play golf. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's just phenomenal. And so you've got that ocean deal. And then you've got an early season deal that gets repeated a little bit in the fall in the backcountry, the north side of the Keys, up toward the Everglades and Florida Bay and in behind Key West. And you'll get these fish that lay up in these back basins. And you might be back in a basin created by a couple of finger banks, and it'll be four or five feet deep. And the tarpon will pull up in there, and they just kind of float and lays around on the surface. And you pull around, and you find them laying there. And then you got to figure out, how do I get a fly in front of them without scaring them, but it's got to get close enough that they'll eat it. And, mm -hmm. and that fishing for laid-up fish, and it's probably at its best from mid-February to mid-April in the Florida Bay area, and those are the biggest tarpon of the year, too. Just three phenomenal different types of way to pursue these guys. And I think that for sheer eye-popping is the ocean migration thing. If you've never gotten a chance to do that, you should. It's just to get out on the ocean side and, and have a good day when a thousand tarpon swim by. It was just a jaw-dropping experience. But if you're a 
hardcore, you love to stalk tough fish, you want to target an individual tarpon, boy, you get into those laid-up fish in good weather in late February, March, and April in the Florida Bay, and there's 130 pounds of fish laying there on the surface. The guide gets you 60 feet away, and it's quiet, wow. and you got to get the fly in there. I don't – let me tell you something. Rainbow trout – rising rainbow trout on the Henry's Fork and the Railroad Ranch are pushovers compared to those big laid-up tarpon. <laughs> <laughs> but boy, when you get when you get one to take, holy smokes! I mean, it, to watch a 130-pound fish just sort of swish its tail a little bit, ease over, crack its lips, and suck in your flying when you stick them, all hell breaks loose. It's as cool a thing as there is in this world. Oh yeah, yeah. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Do you think those fish we were fishing down there off of Key West that were cruising in small schools were the ocean-going fish? I mean, they were big Probably, fish, but. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's probably the because they they cruise all the way down to the Marquesas, which are the islands 30, 40 miles west right. of Key West, and they get back up into that area called the Lakes and the Seven Sisters. There's a whole bunch of cool spots down there, and those fish are yeah. all, what we realize is that big tarpon aggregation in the Keys is basically a pre-spawning aggregation exercise. That's kind of that's spring break. They're, that's cruising the beach. That's the wet T-shirt contest. That's the whole deal before they all go out and do their thing at the end of May and early June <laughs> out in the deep water. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, like you say, there's nothing like it. Richard Elkin in New Jersey did ask about the juvenile tarpon fishery. He asked where your favorite is. Is there better places in the Keys than others to look for the juveniles? Uh, I can tell you anywhere from Isla Morada to to Key West, they're there in different spots. Okay. You want to talk about places that get to be closely guarded secrets because <laughs> guys oh, know where they yeah. are. But but there's it's and that's really the best time to do that is summer and probably all the way up into mid to late October. And summer they're fishing holding up in the, in the is, mangroves, right? They're on the edges of the mangroves, and they're again in little right. basins and bays. And mostly, it's an early morning deal. You go out at dawn. The fishing is often done by 9 o'clock when the sun comes up because they stop rolling. They're still there, but you'll see them rolling at, at first light in the morning, and you can throw gurgler flies at them. And you want to have a blast some morning. Is get an overcast, calm morning, August, September, and get into a pot of the small 10, 15, 20-pound tarpon and start throwing gurglers at them. And most of the time they miss them but the bites are so incredibly spectacular. You find yourself laughing yourself to death just because watching those things try to annihilate these flies on the surface is just fun, even though you're not catching as many as you maybe want. It's a really cool experience. <laughs> cool, cool. Let's talk about some of the people you've met over the years and fished with. Uh, you know, in your book, you've profiled a bunch of them, mentioned many excellent anglers. Can you pick one or two and just tell us about fishing with them, whether it be a guide or not a guide, and what you may have learned from them that day out? Well, I put in there, there's there's four fellows that I got to know in Marathon 25, 30 years ago, and they're now neighbors and really close friends of Bus Bergman, Albert Ponzoa, Rich Keating, and Scott Collins. And Scott's famous because he's a big tournament-winning guy and all kinds of good stuff, great great fella to boot and just the things that I learned from those guys I would have never succeeded in flats fishing without these guys their patient instruction was just invaluable and 
it, there's just so many flats fishing because it's difficult because the fish are big and they're strong and we're trying to get them on flies it takes a lot of focus and what you learn from the really good guides and the good anglers too i mean and Stu Apt is a legendary angler is a good friend of mine and I first saw Stu when I was about a 12 or 13 year old kid on the old American sportsman TV show catching giant tarpon in the keys with Joe Brooks and I can oh, remember wow. thinking at the time I want to do that someday and the fact that I a got to do it and a got to be good friends with Stu because we met through the bonefish tarpon board it's kind of the equivalent of many kids in that era becoming good friends with Mickey Mantle, you know. <laughs> but uh, right. talking to Stu, you know, it's attention to detail and learning to tie good knots and the sharp hooks and the focus, all that off-the-water preparation and practice, practice before you get out there. Those are the hallmarks that make successful guys, whether they're in the tournaments or not. If you take flats angling a little too casually – and you stick the hooks into some rampaging 100-pound tarpon, and you haven't done your knots right, and your leader's not right, and the backing isn't right, and you're done, and it's over with before it starts. And so those are things you learn. And then the last one is you learn a little humility in this. You're going to get humbled by these fish. They're going to kick your tail across the, the parking lot more times than you care, and you have to learn to deal with that kind of defeat and deal with the humility of it. I mean, it's... You're being stomped on by some fish with a brain the size of a pea, but that, that, <laughs> yeah. you got to learn from that, and that makes you a better angler. Yeah. yeah, you had a couple of stories in your book I just that came to mind because we talked about, and you were just talking now about being prepared and practice, and casting is one of those things. You need to spend hours before you go down there, hours and hours. If you're a trout fisherman, you got to get an 8 weight. you got to get an 11, 10, 11, yep. 12 weight and work it and work it and work it. And one of your stories I think you told where the, the guy got on the boat and he couldn't cast, he's a real newbie or whatever, and the guy grabbed his rod and, and <laughs> reeled it up and put it away <laughs> and handed him a spinning rod or something. <laughs> I thought, there, that may happen to you if you don't prepare properly for fishing the flats, right? Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's quite I, frustrating. I that's the old days. And some, yeah, you know, yeah. 30, 40 years ago, the keys guides were legendary for basically I think they'd all been former drill instructors for the Marines because you know that's what it was like in the boat the new generation of guys are a lot more accommodating and willing to teach but I will say this you're going to spend all the time to take a trip and you get down there and you're plunking out hundreds of dollars a day and you just haven't prepared yourself and you get on the bow and it's blowing 10 to 15 and the guide can put you within 40, 50, 60 feet of these fish. But, yeah. you know, that last 40, 50 feet, that belongs to you. And if if, yep. if you haven't brushed up on your casting skills and you haven't worked on your physical so you can stand on the bow of a bouncing boat a little bit, all the money in the world isn't going to get you that last 50 feet. And it just, I, I'm always amazed, I know the guides are too, that there's just people who, they spend all this time and all this money and they bring all the equipment and then they just don't do that last little bit of preparation that enables them to succeed. Yeah, yeah I could tell you all my experiences, if I've missed a fish, it's all on me. It's never been on the guide, you know what I mean? It's that last 40 feet, like you're saying, of putting it in the right place, doing the right thing. I remember one time casting into a little kind of cove in the lagoon 
of the tarpon, and the tarpon was started following my fly right at me. I mean, you could see his eyes and his mouth open up, <laughs> and he was just about to take the fly, and then I stripped it because I thought he was <laughs> And the guy, yeah. <laughs> he says, what are you doing? you got to let him eat it first. <laughs> but yeah. I was so excited, you know, and I thought I saw oh. his mouth open up. I thought it was in there. But I think in your book you mentioned that about that, how the tarpon suck it in, and you got to wait yep. till they actually suck it in, right? Well, that, absolutely. <laughs> yep. No, it, yeah. look, everybody who starts, there's another section in there. I think I call it the the seven deadly sins of tarpon fishing. Everybody who goes into this has committed every one of those sins multiple times, because when you <laughs> you know the the infamous trout set. You come to the salt water, you spent your life throwing nice slack line, dry fly casts, and the trout eats and you lift your rod up. Well, you you can't do that in the salt. It just pulls the fly away. It comes right up out of the tarpon's mouth. And even if he ate it, there's not enough pressure with that to drive it into that toilet bowl mouth that they've got. And every guy in the world, I've been on the boat with some very, very good anglers and the first time out there, and you remind them, okay, you're going to strip set. Oh, man. One thing I've taught myself, I'm not going to trout set when that tarpon eats. I remember having a really super, super fishing guide from Alaska, and trout and salmon guy. And he did a beautiful job casting. He kept his buck fever. I think he fed three tarpon, and three times in a row that rod came snapping up over his head. And it was pure instinct for him. He just couldn't help himself. Yeah. And, of course, you know, the big giant boil, and the fish swam away, and the group guides on the back groaning audibly but everybody's going to make those mistakes it's just a question of staying focused and then saying okay i made the mistake i've checked the box i've got it out of my system i'm not going to do it again (laughs) and that's what makes us successful guys yeah you just brought something to mind you know we talk about casting practicing casting before you go down there especially if you're a trout fisherman but you could practice strip setting as well i mean i'm just thinking you could you could have somebody with some heavy mono tied to your fly, and you could be stripping it across the grass, and you don't know when they're going to tighten up on it. And then when they do, yeah. what do you do? You know, that might be a way to practice that. But I, that's definitely something that – and how else are you going to practice that? You really don't want to be practicing it <laughs> on the fish, no. right? It, you want it, to have that down set. No, you do. It's just one of those things that my good friend – Plus Bergman, he uses this term, he tells his anglers, he wants you to be a predator. And what Bus hopes, and all the guides tell you much the same thing, maybe in different words, is you do your preparation. You've got your casting, so it's, you're going to be able to put, put the fly where you want to put it within a reasonable time frame, blah, blah, blah. And you know you're going to strip set, you're about clearing the line. You get all that stuff sort of worked through because of your preparation and practice so that when you're standing on the bow and that permit of that tarpon is bearing down on you, you're thinking about, I'm putting the fly where it needs to be to get a bite, and then I'm going to catch this fish. It's that predatory focus. You're not thinking about weight on the back cast, and, oh, remember to strip set, and can I stack my line? All of those extraneous things. Buss's attitude is you'll be so much better if you can keep that predatory focus on catching that fish and presenting the fly, and all the other stuff is sort of like muscle memory. Yeah, should be. If you're thinking should be anyways, about all, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're thinking about all that other yeah. stuff, it gets in the way. It makes you – the guys who are really good at this stuff, 
it's just amazing to watch the focus, the predatory focus that they bring to standing on the bow of the boat. And it's the difference between being a good amateur golfer and watching a professional. It's totally, yeah. you know, it's these guys are in a different yeah. universe and it's something we can all aspire to. Yeah, and it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. That uh, It's something that you need to work at. I know this a uh, couple of weeks ago we were camping up in Wyoming, and I was teaching my partner, Julie, how to uh, – we were just catching brookies in this lake, right? And, and I was trying to teach her. You know, they were taking flies off the surface. It was really kind of piece-of-cake stuff. But she was – it was challenging for her to get that hook set, even yeah. with a trout set. But it's all a matter of, it was timing, and I was trying to teach her that. And then I realized, you know what? It's taken years for me to get that timing down with trout. Well, now you go to the salt, you got a whole other timing set up, and depending on what fish it is, right, as to what yeah. that timing might be. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, not easy. Well, a couple of things before we finish up here because we're running short of time. We talked about the Keys. We talked about Andros a bit. I know you fished over in Ascension Bay in Mexico. Richard Elkin in New Jersey wrote in, and he says, I've always been interested in new destinations, having fished in Belize, Andros, Grand Bahama, and one day in Ascension Bay. How has the fishery in the Florida Keys improved over the past few years, and is it more challenging to, to, uh, place to fish for novice fly fishermen? Do the Bahamas offer a more predictable, more friendly fishery? I think for bonefish, absolutely, the Bahamas is probably the best place to go. It's close to the States. They speak English. The fish are fairly easy to see. Some of the places like Grand Bahama and Andros have some pretty good-sized fish, and it's a much user-friendly deal. If, But, you know, for tarpon, there's really one place to go. It's the Florida Keys. And if you want to get into the tarpon business, you just you <laughs> sign up and be prepared to invest your time as being an apprentice before you really get there. And time in the Keys with a Keys guide is probably the best way in the world to learn how to tarpon fish. Permit, you can do the Keys or you can do Ascension Bay or Belize. I think you'll do fine in all those locations. Each are a little bit different. Probably, if you're a ranked beginner, probably Ascension Bay and Belize a little bit better. That's kind of my sense of the ranking of those places. Now, I don't, uh, in the Bahamas, are there any permit or tarpon out there? Is it There's all a few fish? tarpon around. There's a few tarpon around Andros, and there's a few small ones here and there, and there's a couple of spots in the Bahamas where there's supposed to be some permit. I don't think you're going to go to the Bahamas for permit. I mean, that's not okay. my experience. The Keys, Belize, yeah. and Ascension Bay are where you go catch permit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, good. Looking to the future, what do you see, the, you know, the health of the flats, fisheries, and the fish, and, and the Keys, and, you know, what changes do you, do you see on the horizon, either, either good or bad? Well, I think we're hoping that in the Keys that we continue with this Everglades restoration deal and we get that water flow fixed coming into Florida Bay, which will do wonders for the whole estuary and, and the Keys. And then the other issue in the Keys is just kind of crowding. I mean, man, did we get slammed last year during COVID. Everybody showed up down there. Oh, yeah. And the water got overrun with people who don't know what they're doing and they're running aground. And, and I know that the groups are all working with the Florida Keys Marine Sanctuary, and a lot of the backcountry is wildlife refuge. And, of course, Florida Bay is mostly within Everglades National Park. And working with the various federal and state agencies to start to come up with some kind of reasonable 
like zoning plans and, and places that you can't run a motor, but you can pull in and you could use an electric motor, but you can't run a combustion engine. And you know, we're going to bar the jet skis from running over this flat and that flat. Things like that are going to have to be taken into account if we're going to hold on, because we can't have the waters around the keys turned into some kind of uh, park where everybody in a big boat runs around with their stereos blasting. <laughs> it just isn't going to happen, mm -hmm. and it's not going to work in that shallow water environments. Yeah, you read the book. I got a long section in there, kind of on this, put on my old public policy hats about we got to get people. Flats anglers need to get engaged on these conservation and resource management issues if we're going to have a flats fishery in the future. That fishery is still good. Their fish are still there. It's an awesome place. We just need to work to keep it and protect it and bring back the places where we beat it up a little bit too much. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think the fishing industry got hit hard everywhere. I know here in Colorado they sold 70,000 more fishing licenses uh, in the year of COVID than they did the year before. So, And all the public put-ins and stuff were stacked. And, I mean, it was something people could do without going and catching COVID, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, no, and that, uh, yeah. We understand it. It's just it's like anything down yeah. there. You just can't run a boat from A to B because there's so many banks and flats and coral heads and things. Oh, yeah. And, and just you get a lot of people getting on the water without a lot of education and a lot of people without any sense of the etiquette, you know, when the anglers are – pulling around. You see a guy on a polling platform way up on a flat, don't run your jet ski within 25 yards of yeah. them, guys. Come on. You yeah, know? dump him off the, the platform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah, really. And we just need a little bit more education. But the community will get organized, and I'm obviously Bonefish Tarpon Trust is playing a big role in a lot of this stuff. And oh, sure. Great organization. But, you know, we need a, just a wider engagement among flats anglers and or ones who want to be flats anglers to help us so that yeah. people are able to come in the near future and enjoy all the wonderful, spectacular fishing I've personally had the good privilege to enjoy over the last 20 years. Well, you sure have, and I'm very envious <laughs> all the time you get to spend on the water, but good for you, good for you. Well, we're out of time now, Bill, but we've got to wrap things up. Stick with me here a few more minutes because we're going to do some giveaways and prizes and so forth. We're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and also a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a copy of your latest book, On the Bow, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So uh, I'm sure people will want to get a copy of that as well. So hang tight. We'll be right back and we'll yes, give sir. a few things away. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, uh, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items to view their current wish list and to learn how you can help support their retreats, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org. Or you can call them at 616-855-4017, 616-855-4017. 
Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you haven't registered for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are a lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. So let me fire up the database here and see who it picks. Looks like our first pick for the FFI membership is Al Moore, Al Moore in Georgia. So congratulations, Al. I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership. And for those of you that didn't win tonight, go check them out, flyfishersinternational.org, and become a member. We'll give away the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal subscription, and that's courtesy of AmatoBooks.com. Again, a publisher who publishes many books on fly fishing. Check them out, AmatoBooks.com. And our winner for that is Gordon Woodward, Gordon Woodward in Massachusetts. So congratulations, Gordon. I'm sure you'll enjoy that subscription as well. Now we're going to give away a copy of Bill Horn's book, On the Bow, Love, Fear, and Fascination in the Pursuit of Bonefish, Tarpon, and Permit. What you need to do is you need to put your answer in the form on our homepage. Okay, let me just clear my... Oh, Dennis still wants to go fishing with you, Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you better take him. At least I will. Let him, you know, you will. Okay, okay. Um, have him clean the boat or something for you first and afterwards, of course. You know, I mean, it always has to be kept clean. So that's something he could probably manage, right? Yeah. So Absolutely. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So uh, put your answer in that form on our homepage where you may have asked questions during the show. And here's what I want you to do. We talked about three fish tonight. Put them in order by easiest to hardest to catch. Put them in order by easiest to hardest to catch, and you'll win Bill Horn's book on the bow. Bill, it takes it a second. There's a slight delay before they even hear us, and then they have to type. And some of them type like they tie knots, so it can be a while before <laughs> they respond. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those, you know, I'm not the fastest knot tire out there, I'll tell you that. But uh, we'll wait just a second and, uh, sure. and see what we get here. So, here we go. How about, tell me if this is correct, Bill, bonefish, tarpon, and permit. Correct. Correct. Edwin Lowe in San Francisco. Not many bonefish, tarpon, or permit up in San Francisco. Edwin, you need to take a trip. <laughs> so maybe you'll, well, I know Bill's book will inspire you to take that trip, and maybe you already have, but enjoy. Edwin, I've got your name and your email address. Please use that same text box and send me your shipping address so that we can get Stackpole to ship you out Bill's book, and we'll get that out to you. So congratulations. Thanks for listening and paying attention and taking notes. And there was a hint. It's in the title, the subtitle of Phil's book. So <laughs> I was going to throw that out if people got uh, didn't get it. We also got 
another one. Phil got it right, Phil Riley. And, oh, Dennis got it wrong. He got it backwards. Maybe he thinks permit are easy. I don't know. Maybe he's a better fisherman than I. Yeah. Anyway, hey, Dell, thanks so much for being with me tonight. I know it's late out on the East Coast, but I really appreciate your sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top line menu in the archive. You'll find all of our past shows, over 335 shows now. And you can search by keyword, keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River permit, whatever, and you'll find a bunch of shows on almost any topic and great source of education that we've developed over the past 16 years. So um, check it out, browse around, find some stuff that you like, and go learn. Our next broadcast will be on August 18th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'll interview Jake Philwalk, and our topic of the show will be smallmouth bass, top to bottom. Jake is a professional guide working in Pennsylvania. He hooks his clients up every day with big smallmouth bass. Listen in and learn about the flies he uses, how he ties them, and how he uses them to catch trophy smallies. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Welcome.